I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Money Talks. I'm Simon Long, an editor here at The Economist. And coming up on today's show, what impact might a no-deal Brexit have on interest rates in Britain? The Bank of England has stressed that, in fact, in the event of an edge of Brexit, monetary policy could get looser, but it could actually get tighter. And in sport, can coaching make all the difference? Up to 30% of the variation of the team's performance can be ascribed to coaches. But first... The U.S. Treasury has announced plans to reprivatize Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The two companies have been in a form of government control since their record-breaking bailout in September 2008. The plan for their futures, from Stephen Mnuchin, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, calls Fannie and Freddie's status the last unfinished business of the financial crisis. You're right, they've been in conservatorship for too long, and we want to make sure they're not in conservatorship on a permanent basis. The two so-called government-sponsored enterprises still prop up most of the country's mortgage finance. In fact, more than $5 trillion of housing-related securities sit on their balance sheets. That's nearly half the total outstanding in America. I'm joined by Alice Fullwood, The Economist's American finance correspondent. Hello, Alice. Hello, Simon. Could you just give us a background as to what these companies do and to the circumstances of that 2008 bailout? Fannie and Freddie don't actually make mortgage loans. Um, Banks make mortgage loans and then Fannie and Freddie will buy those loans um, off banks. They will attach a guarantee. They'll say that if a borrower defaults on their principal or interest on that mortgage, uh, that Fannie and Freddie will cough up instead and then they bundle those mortgages together and sell those securities to investors. um, And sometimes they keep them on their balance sheet. So um, that process underpins the entire mortgage-backed securities market in America, which is worth $8.5 trillion um, and about 70% of mortgages in America are ultimately securitized in this way. And in 2008, Fannie and Freddie suffered on both of those counts. So number one, they had to cough up on those guarantees because people started defaulting on their mortgages. And number two, uh, as you mentioned, they hold vast quantities of mortgage-backed securities. And uh, those also started to suffer losses. So when they started losing money, they ultimately had to be bailed out by the Treasury. And people had always assumed that the U.S. government had bailed them out, um, that their debt had always traded very close to government rates. Uh, but this was sort of the first time that they actually got into significant enough trouble that the government actually had to step in. Uh, so they put them into what's called conservatorship, which is a form of government control. One can see why Mr. Mnuchin might call this the last unfinished business of the financial crisis. But why now? Why move to privatise them at this moment? Putting Fannie and Freddie into conservatorship was always supposed to be a, a temporary solution. And it's been more than a decade now uh, since they were taken over by the government. For a while, politicians had said that they wanted to sort of wind down Fannie and Freddie or sort of end um, their presence in the housing market. But those solutions look increasingly sort of politically untenable. 
partly because uh, Fannie and Freddie are critical in helping banks to offer the 30-year fixed rate mortgage, which Americans have come to sort of really enjoy. So all sides since 2008 have come to the realisation that they are going to have to sort of live with Fannie and Freddie as, as entities in the housing market. And it was sort of one of the things that the Trump administration really wanted to get reform done on. So expectations and building throughout the administration that they would eventually bring out some housing plan. And now they're getting late enough in the day that it's now or never for them to make this big push on housing reform. And how would privatisation actually work? What would happen to Fannie and Freddie? So there is a couple of key things that need to happen before they're sort of pushed back into the private sector. And the most important one is that it needs to be recapitalised. Uh, so since they were bailed out in 2008, the Treasury has appropriated some of their profits. And since 2012, it's appropriated all of their profits. Um, and they add up to about $15 billion a year from both entities. At the same time, the Treasury in 2012 asked Fannie and Freddie to remit uh, $600 million a year of their capital to the Treasury as well. And those two efforts uh, were designed to help them claw back the cost of that $190 billion bailout. They have now surpassed those costs. So Fannie and Freddie have remitted almost $100 billion more back to the Treasury than they took out in 2008. Uh, But it means that their capital buffers are very depleted. Uh, They hold $3 billion a piece each. So the goal of the Treasury, by putting them back into the private sector, is to sort of try and insulate taxpayers from taking losses if the housing market softens again. And does the Treasury have a free hand in this? Can it do what it wants? Or does Congress have a role? There are some things the Treasury can do alone. So in theory, Mark Calabria, who's the head of the FHFA, which is the regulator that looks after Fannie and Freddie, he could end conservatorship um, tomorrow if he wanted. He could do that by renegotiating this profit sweep arrangement that the Treasury has with these entities. And, you know, he'd allow them to sort of retain some of their profits. That would help them build up capital slowly over time. And he could sell down some of the shares that the Treasury has put them back into private hands. All of those things are things that the Treasury and the FHFA can do alone. Uh, But they don't want to do them alone because it will sort of mean change the status quo, but it's not the sort of big bang reform that they're aiming for. For that, they would need the help of Congress. And what they are asking Congress to do is basically they want for Mark Calabria, the FHFA director, to be able to issue charters to other private firms that will mean that there could be competition in this market uh, for Fannie and Freddie. So they wouldn't be this sort of enormous duopoly that's underpinned the whole housing market. And they also want Congress to give them that explicit guarantee we were talking about. So those are sort of the two key parts of the plan that they want Congress to help them with. But they have said that they will push ahead with their plans regardless. This sounds like it ought to be good news for American homeowners and borrowers, right? That there'll be more competition in the market and there'll be an explicit government guarantee. So mortgages ought to become cheaper. Potentially. I think that the status quo as it is, which is that most American mortgages are ultimately underpinned by Fannie and Freddie's securitization process, which has this implicit government guarantee. I don't think it will meaningfully change the needle on that. American mortgages um, are already very good value because the government takes on all of the creditor risk. But ultimately, over time, if you do see more competition, then what the important change will be is for sort of Americans on the taxpayer side, maybe that they're sort of better insulated from having to pay all of the costs associated with those guarantees. But is there anything in the package that would protect Fannie and Freddie against getting into such serious trouble again? I mean, the cycle could repeat itself if the property market crashed, couldn't it? 
that is one of the bigger questions. You know, even if you get these changes through and they have banked like capital levels, uh, which will take the first hit and they have this sort of insurance payment, these fees that they pay to the government that the government would use like insurance in the case of a downturn. If it was really bad again, if it was 2008 levels again, then there's still a chance that Fannie and Freddie would have to be bailed out again. And in fact, in the Treasury report, they did say that the proposed capital rule that the FHFA had come up with would only have left Fannie and Freddie with sort of a couple billion dollars left after the 2008 financial crisis. So they weren't certain that that was quite tough enough yet. So in those sort of very extreme, very tail risky scenarios, I think the assumption would be that they would possibly need and would probably get another bailout. But the idea is that you could set their structure up in a way that during the course of relatively normal business, even if there was a slowdown, Fannie and Freddie would be able to take care of themselves and would be able to continue as sort of a going concern. Alice, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. You can read more about the future of Fannie and Freddie in the forthcoming edition of The Economist. And if you're not yet a subscriber, go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next, while MPs may have voted to block a no-deal Brexit on the 31st of October, the possibility of leaving the European Union without a deal has not gone away. So the Bank of England is having to think very carefully about how it would manage the consequences of such an abrupt exit from the single market. Would it cut interest rates, as most assume, or might it actually raise them? Callum Williams is the Economist Britain economics correspondent. Hello, Callum. Hello. So, to start with, Parliament has moved to block a no-deal Brexit. So, why might it still be a possibility? Well, I mean, all sorts of shenanigans could take place. I mean, there's a conversation at the moment about whether the Prime Minister would ignore any law preventing a no-deal Brexit on the 31st of October. And, of course, the other important point is that if there is a new Parliament say, after a general election, that parliament could vote in favour of no deal at a later stage. And so it's in theory and most likely not going to happen on the 31st of October, but it could still happen at some point soon. And if it were to happen on October the 31st or later, do we have any real idea of what the immediate impact would be? We'd wake up on November the 1st and find what different? Some people say that it would be a short, sharp shock and then people would get used to it. And other people say exactly the opposite, that actually on day one, it wouldn't be so bad and that the costs would mount over time. So one example of how it would be bad on day one is, say, that the ports at Dover and Calais might be operating well below full capacity. Now, they have done a lot of work in improving, sort of getting ready, improving themselves. So, you know, a no-deal Brexit now would be kind of probably better than a no-deal Brexit would have been in late March because of the work that Dover and Calais have done. However, there's other things to bear in mind, which is that, for instance, the EU has said that it will recognise various licences and so on, say, for instance, to do with trucking and that sort of thing, for a few months after a no-deal Brexit, but not forever. And so eventually those sorts of things will lapse, at which point the impact of no-deal Brexit will become clear. So no one really knows whether it's you know, going to be sort of front-loaded or back-loaded, but there will definitely be an impact on the economy. And has the Bank of England given any indication of how it might react to that impact? So most people think that the Bank of England would cut interest rates and possibly do other sorts of things to loosen monetary policy. They did that after the referendum in 2016. However, the Bank of England has stressed again and again and again that, in fact, in the event of a no-deal Brexit, monetary policy could get looser, but it could actually get tighter. Why would that be? Why would it raise interest rates with the economy facing these sudden headwinds? 
the argument that everyone thinks about is the argument in favour of cutting, which is basically that you know consumers would be sort of more nervous and pull back on spending and, and businesses would do the same thing. And so the solution is to cut interest rates because that encourages borrowing and spending and so on. There is an argument in favour of raising interest rates, basically because the argument goes that inflation would rise a long way above the Bank of England's 2% target. So inflation is actually already slightly above the Bank of England's target. What would happen in a no-deal Brexit is, one, you would get a depreciation of sterling, probably by as much as 10%, if not maybe even a bit more. And it's already gone down quite a lot. It's already gone down quite a lot, but you'd get a big shock if no-deal Brexit suddenly became likely. So one, you'd get a depreciation of sterling, which would lead to uh, inflation going up. And two, you'd get what economists would call a supply-side shock. So basically, the sort of productive potential of the UK economy would be lower as a result of these sort of barriers to trade being erected between uh, the UK and, and the EU. So what that might mean in sort of very practical terms is, say, for instance, it became more difficult to import milk from the EU. This is a perishable good. So, you know, you can imagine it would become more difficult. So all of the UK firms and UK consumers say, OK, that's fine because we'll just buy British milk. The problem is the farmers in Britain won't be able to just buy loads more cows and produce a load more milk overnight to satisfy that demand. So what will happen is they'll probably raise their prices. And this is something that various members of the Bank of England are worried about. And so that supply side shock in the jargon could, in fact, lead to uh, inflation going up. And that would mean that the Bank of England might want to, in fact, raise interest rates. That minority of economists who think this will benefit the economy, how do they see things playing out? So I should emphasise that this work is not considered to be good work by any kind of trade economist outside that group. But it sort of relies on the idea that, let's say you have the no deal Brexit, and what the UK does is abolish all of its tariffs on all of its imports. So basically, you can import anything and you don't have to pay any tax on that import at all. And when they feed that into their model, the result is that you get this enormous spike in in GDP, which is which is great. One of the downsides, which the authors of this work have been kind of quite open about, is that the manufacturing industry in the UK gets entirely wiped out. And I think farmers also get entirely wiped out. So, you know, even if you believe these estimates, I mean, there's clearly a bit of a downside there. Um, what estimates are there of the overall impact of a no-deal Brexit on the size of the British economy? It does depend on who you ask. There is a very small group of economists who think that it will be good for the economy, but they really are in the minority and their methodology is questioned. The government's view is sort of 6 to 9% smaller in the long run. That doesn't mean that GDP will fall by 6 to 9% from where it is today. It means that in sort of 10 to 15, 20 years time, the economy will be 6 to 9% smaller than it would have been otherwise. So it might not shrink at all. I mean, the, the economy would still keep growing, but at a slower pace. That is possible. I mean, my sense is that the consensus among uh, economists has become that there would be a recession in the event of no deal, not least because the economy at the moment is growing very slowly. So it doesn't sort of take much to knock it into recession. Were the economy growing at 2 or 3% a year, then I think people would view it differently. But yeah, I think the consensus is that you would have a recession, although that's not entirely clear. Callum, thanks very much. Thank you. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And finally, what's the key to sporting success? For years, films like Moneyball have had us believe that it's all about the coaches, that one maverick, rule-bending ideologue who can turn an athlete's fortunes around through sheer willpower. And now a new academic paper proposes a way to measure just how much of a difference professional coaches make. It looks at four of America's biggest sports, basketball, baseball, football, that's football, not soccer, and ice hockey. Sam Blake is with The Economist in New York, where he writes about business and finance. He joins me now. Hello, Sam. Hello, Simon. Firstly, how did they manage to measure the significance coaches make? It's important to clarify that what these guys are looking at is whether coaches matter in aggregate. And despite what those films uh, like Moneyball tend to suggest, in fact, most of the work that's been done to try to isolate the effect of a coach on a team has actually found that professional coaches appear to be interchangeable. Now, it's been really historically difficult to isolate the effect of a coach on a team's performance, and the authors of this paper ascribe that difficulty to the fact that when you're assessing a team's performance, it could be due to the coaching effect, but it could also be due to a multitude of other factors or even just pure chance. But what these guys have done is started using a clever method for attempting to isolate that coaching effect, and and here's how they do it. They run a statistical regression to see how coaches affect a specific outcome of interest like wins or points scored per game, say in a basketball uh, team. And this gives them some output of that coach effect. Now, the last thing they do is they then use this technique called randomization inference, wherein they perform several simulations in such a way that it actually removes that coach effect, but it keeps those other components that could cloud the ability to isolate the coaching effect. And they find when they compare the results that the coaches actually do matter. Do they support the popular prejudice about this, that there are certain big name coaches that people think make a big difference? Are there specific coaches they looked at who did well? They have found that in looking at certain coaches, what you can do is test their outcome. And they found that some coaches that, especially here in America, we tend to think are of in the upper echelons, such as Bill Belichick, do indeed exhibit a particular skill in getting their teams to perform well. But presumably the coach still only really makes a difference at the margin. I mean, it's basically down to the players, isn't it? It can only be just where two teams are nearly as good as each other that the coach can make the difference. That's fair. And, you know, the authors definitely agree with that for the most part. However, they do tend to find that uh, in some sports, uh, up to 30% of the variation of the team's performance can be ascribed to coaches. What's interesting, though, also is that there's some variation across different outcomes. So I mentioned you could look at a team's wins or a team's points scored, but you could also look at other things like a team's points allowed. And they found that on certain outcomes, coaches are more impactful than others. 
And what about between sports? Are there some sports where they make more of a difference than others? Yeah, so in all four of the major sports, they have found that coaches matter. But for instance, in college basketball, they matter more than in professional basketball. And the authors uh, hypothesize that perhaps that's because the role of a coach in college basketball is much more embedded in the actual recruiting of players, uh, more so than in the professional level. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, presumably it's a complex enough study as it is that they can't actually go into which bits of the coach's job make a difference. Is it working on the player's fitness, their diets, their technique, or is it in the selection and acquisition, I guess, in some cases? At this early stage of this method, they have not been able to kind of isolate further components of that coaching effect. But they do suggest some opportunities for figuring out kind of what other aspects not necessarily that a coach does for players, but that a coach could bring to bear on his experience, such as his education, how that could affect his ability to um, impact his team's outcomes. And are there any thoughts of uh, applying their techniques to other industries, to businesses? Will chief executives be worried that they might be <laughs> measured in the same way? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the, the two gentlemen who authored this study are, by trade, political scientists. And they have been attempting, before even turning their uh, method to sports, to use it on measuring the effectiveness of political leaders. And they're now actually looking at uh, just as you suggest, measuring the effectiveness of, of certain CEOs. And, you know, there are some limitations. You have to have enough data on the folks that you're studying to be able to make some sort of statistically valid inference about their capabilities. But generally speaking, what this model is able to do across a variety of industries is help identify which characteristics leaders can be expected to have an impact on and which one are going to be more subject to other components and, and chance. Sam, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. Thanks for having me. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. While you're with us, don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Simon Long, and in London, this is The Economist. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.